You're about to listen to episode two of What Are You Making Me Watch? In it, we will be discussing episode two of Band of Brothers, Day of Days. Here be spoilers. Welcome to episode two of What Are You Making Me Watch? I'm Paul Kirkley. And I'm Hannah Dunleavy. Thanks for all your nice messages about episode one. We are absolutely going to let it go to our heads. I already have. (laughs) Coming up, we're going to be talking about episode two of Band of Brothers, Day of Days, asking if the effects stand up and when the perfect time is for a folksy monologue. I'd like you to end this episode with a folksy monologue, if at all possible, Paul. I'll do my best Fred Savage. (laughs) I'm going to be talking to historian and World War II buff James Holland, wished, Kirkley, about historical accuracy in fiction and to actor Matthew Leach about, well, almost every topic under the sun. So here we are, episode two, Day of Days. And Easy Company find themselves scattered across Normandy with just a knife, a can opener and a bit of wood with some nails in to defend themselves. When a handful of them make it to the meeting point, they are sent on what looks like a suicide mission but manage to pull it off, bagging a bunch of medals in the process. They might not yet know what we know, that their leader, Lieutenant Meehan, is dead, but by the episode's end, Winters looks every bit the sort of man you'd want in charge. Bad news for Popeye Wynn, though, who, in his own words, gets fucked up his ass and not in the bad way. Or is it the bad way? I don't know. I've put way too much thought into it already. Sorry, Paul, were you hoping your kids might be able to listen to this podcast? (laughs) I think that um, that was baked in, as they say. (laughs) But I did wonder if um, Popeye getting um, shot in the ass was Hanks' little tribute to Forrest Gump, where he got shot. Shot in the buttocks, didn't he? It's not. In fact, we can revisit the conversation about being shot in the ass in another right. episode. Okay. So this is the big effects episode, I would say. Obviously, them all in the planes dropping out into the sky over Normandy as all manner of shit rains around them. Paul, how do you think the effects have stood up 20 years on? I think they look pretty fantastic. Um, yeah, agreed. I mean, bear in mind, as you know, I am a big Doc- Doctor Who fan, so I, I, I spend a lot of time watching people <laughs> being attacked by a sock <laughs> puppet from the 1960s. So, um, but no, I, I mean, what it struck me, from especially the opening sequence and later the attack on the gun battery, they're, they're both very in the Saving Private Ryan mould of that really kinetic, immersive visceral kind of terror of being in in the theatre of war there's the speed and confusion to it which i think is quite i don't know if saving private was saving private ryan the first thing to do that because obviously your classic war films moved at a more sedate pace you know there have obviously been some terrific war films made by great directors stanley kubrick terence malick things like that but i don't know if was saving private ryan the first one that did that approach of you know as if you were just being assailed by bullets from all sides I think it I think it probably was. It was yeah. certainly the first thing I ever saw that gave bullets a noise other than bang. That, <laughs> <Yes>. that <laughs> yeah. noise, which is totally terrifying. That is what it is. It, it sells the terror really well in that in that opening sequence in the air, the the kind of disorientation and the fact that terrible things happen in the blink of an eye and you know, 
bang, that plane's hit, they're gone, but you don't, there's no time to dwell on it. You know, they don't get a little musical cue or anything because that's it's just too fast and you're on to the next thing because that's that's how it is in the in the heat of battle. And the noise as well, the, the sound editing is is terrific. I don't know if you read Kate Atkinson's A God in Ruins, that's about a British Halifax bomber pilot, and it's brilliant at, at conveying how noisy and how freezing cold and just how dangerous it is even just being up in the air in one of those buckets mm. even you know before you come into enemy fire and i thought this sequence was was a bit like that sort of similarly immersive it, it's not the kind of sedate stately mm. it, it's just it's very very yeah kinetic and, and fast and, and terrifying i think one of the things it does really well is how constricted they are into the space they are in and there's a couple yeah. of things that it shows really well there's one when um Lip, who is Donny Wahlberg, is crawling across the field and someone crawls past him and asks where HQ is. And he lifts his head the tiniest fraction and he, and he gets shot in the head. And, and there's another bit where Bill Garnier, is, the bullet just keeps hitting next to his hand. And so yeah. how, how little margin for error they've got, I yes. think, is really rammed home in this episode. And, and how, you know, whole lives and deaths and future family trees turn on, you know, millimetres of luck, don't mm. they? Yeah, so I mean, I, th- I thought it absolutely still still would be difficult to really do it much better twenty years on. I thought. I mean, obviously done within at the time, technologically great. Right. I mean, obviously at the time, sort of cutting edge. But I think it's done within the realms of of knowing what they could do, so they haven't tried to do too much. And because it comes with that that you were talking about la- last time about that great sort of swell of emotion. That when you look down and see all those planes, just the massive amount of planes and the boats down there, the emotions doing a bit of the work yeah, in seeing that. Yes. Although I'm watching it like on a much bigger telly than I watched it the first time, so I mean it, yeah. it's it's subject to more scrutiny. But yeah, I I think it stands up, yeah, really pretty well. As much the direction as the effects, isn't it? It's just the direction and the editing, sound editing, and everything. It just combines to create a really kind of a immersively terrifying experience it's just that sells the speed of it i think that's what sh- if you grew up w- watching you know, the guns of navarone or whatever you you would never get a sense of just the speed at which it all happens and i think that's really really well sold in this so it's obviously chaos mm. during a lot of this how are you getting on with telling who the hell anyone <laughs> actually is really really badly if i have a well i was gonna say if i have a main criticism of this episode but it's not really the episode's fault i don't know what, I, what they're supposed to do apart from having everyone write their name on their helmet <laughs> but yeah i wasn't quite sure at most points who i was watching i recognized um damien lewis obviously there's an awful lot of men who i've only who I only met last week and now they're all smeared in grease paint or whatever it is they wear is, sorry, is ha- this still on Band of Brothers or is this just Jim Reed? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I thought, we, thought we'd stop recording. <laughs> um, You're all smeared in a greenish black face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then they've all got helmets on, which I accept is useful in a war situation. So I don't know who the hell was anyone it was anymore. So you, you mentioned Donnie Wahlberg just now, mm. said he got shot in the head. I was going to he ask. He didn't. The guy oh, okay. he was talking to got shot in the right. head. Right. Okay. So I was going to ask you: Was Donny Wahlberg in this episode? Because yes. I remembered him in the first episode. Yes, but I, he is. I just I didn't manage to quite uh, follow where he was in this one. So yeah, I couldn't really tell you who was who. There should be, I think, a couple of characters that are starting to 
make themselves known. Uh, Bill Garnier, who I mentioned earlier, largely because of his accent. I mean, it just it's just a superb performance. But because of that sort of really broad Philly accent, he sort of has stood out quite a lot. And obviously because of the incident with the horse. Right, yeah. Again, the two things are not unrelated, are they? We were just talking about the fact that it's so fast and so kinetic and the attack on the on the gun battery is very similar. So you know, I guess that's the sacrifice you kind of make if you want to pitch the viewer into the hell of war and everything's flying and everything's moving. But if you lose a bit of um, facial recognition and kind of lose track of which soldiers who, then uh, that's kind of worth, probably a price worth paying. But I, you wouldn't want it like that every week, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming that we get some slower character... <laughs> Yeah, and and it, it starts to become a little bit more obvious because you'll see that, you know, even if maybe you don't know the character's name, that he's the translator, he's the medic, he's the radio operator. So it sort of right. becomes clear who sort of who fulfills which role, even if you couldn't yes. necessarily drag a name out of your head. A couple of characters do sort of get their own episodes framed around them. So it is right. it becomes easier and easier to... But, I mean, I have seen this lots of times. Do they not write their names on like they did in Vietnam? <laughs> yeah. Just put Damien Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that I might... I don't know, but I think that might take people out of the moment a tiny bit. The fourth wall breaking, is it? Okay. Just have his IMDb photo <laughs> yeah. his helmet, just to help. His spotlight photo. <laughs> <laughs> so, talking of people who were in this, I think it's time probably to have a, a small round of Spot the Celeb quiz. Which um, I think, based on the conversation we just had, is not going to go well. Well, I've only got one this week. I only have one this week. Which, quotes hot priest landed in the same spot as Winter's when they both missed their drop zone? My God, Sober works fast. Already priests are raining from the sky. <laughs> I did indeed spot hot priest slash Moriarty, Andrew Scott. You don't miss those eyes, do you? Even in grease paint and helmet. Twinkling away. I also have to say, we mentioned him last week and we obviously won't see him again now because we saw his fiery death. But Simon Pegg gets about 10 seconds in this episode and he is doing a thousand yard stare that that reminds me of that photograph that Don McCullen took of the Vietnam War veteran. It is so good. And then he's dead. And then he's dead, yeah. Pegs it, we might say. Are we allowed puns? Yeah, let's see how it goes. Don't encourage them. Okay. (laughs) Can I talk about Damien Lewis's um, little folksy wonder years bit at the end? Where he gives a little voiceover, didn't he? Where he went all Fred Savage. Remember at the end of the wonder years where Fred Savage used to go, I looked at Dad and Dad looked at me and we both knew somehow things would never be quite the same again. <laughs> I enjoyed that little moment where he, that night I took time to thank God for seeing me through that day of days. It was rather lovely, I thought. Quite folksy. Well, see, I was going to ask you because, I mean, you are evangelical atheist and I wondered how you, the Jesus thing sits in something like this. Because, I mean, I obviously also an atheist, but I am prepared to mm. admit that possibly falling from an aeroplane while people were shooting at me might be a sort of thing that could make a person (laughs) reconsider. You'd want to hedge your bets at a time like that, wouldn't you? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, A, America is a much more religious country than we are, and it was a much more religious time. So um, the comfort that that would have brought, even my inner Dawkins would probably probably let them have it. Even though it is obviously a pointless illusion, um, and that they're in fact just facing an eternity of being worm food, 
I think to point that out to them at the time would have would have been unnecessary. Yeah, very magnanimous of you, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. So the structure is interesting. This episode was essentially a series of set pieces: the air attack, the moving under cover of night, then the the attack on the the gun battery. There's very little of what you would call plot in the traditional sense. It was it felt more like we had genuinely dropped in on a parachute regiment on manoeuvres in a war zone. And of course, the reason for that is that it's a true story. And from what I can gather, it's quite a faithfully told true story. So I think there's something quite noble in the way the writers haven't tried to graft a sort of traditional four-act screenplay structure on it. Because you can imagine there might have been some exec going, where you know, where's the third act reversal? We need a stronger delineation between the heroes and the villains more conflict that sort of thing but this all almost... on are you suggesting we need a stronger delineation between <laughs> us and the nazis <laughs> oh, no yeah sorry yeah no the nazis i mean they were bad they were bad and i i i do not condone them at all they're bad people i was thinking maybe the heroes and the villains within the company no i get on you us, on our side. <laughs> yeah just for the record hitler no no <laughs> So it's almost, in some ways, veering right onto the edge of docudrama, would you say? That was true of the first episode as well. In the Hollywood version, Sobel would have had a much more dramatic comeuppance, whereas in reality, it was just like, well, you've been rumbled, we're reassigning you, and he shuffles off stage left. So do you think the fact that they have sacrificed a bit of traditional movie narrative plotting for for sort of uh, fealty to the actual truth. Is is that ever a problem? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's not ideal, is it? In if you were going to sit and, like you say, write a drama, the biggest event is going to happen in episode two, like the yeah. big set piece event. That's just not how anything is plotted. And I think it did have some criticism at the time, which is kind of linked to what we were saying about not being able to recognise people for not having a lead character. I mean, nominally... Yeah. Damien Lewis is the lead character, but that's only in the same way that nominally McNulty is the lead character of The Wire. And I bring that up because I think there must be a link somewhere between, you know, what Band of Brothers was able to achieve and then being able to sell a drama without a lead character and then going up to Chernobyl and being able to sell a drama in which your lead character dies in the first five minutes of it, (laughs) which is like a totally backwards way of presenting it. So... I don't think it matters to me because it, it is a, it's a story, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, it's it's wildly backwards. Why would you spend such a huge amount of time on one character that you were never going to yes. use again? Like, there's no yeah. way that would happen. So, so yeah, I think it can only be television can only be written this way if it is true. Many true stories have been told with a little bit of dramatic license, haven't they? And I'd say that's probably the norm. I'm guessing that. That kind of sustains throughout throughout the series is what is what I guess they're not about to suddenly uh, write in a massive twist unless it happens. If you think about it, you could probably predict what's going to happen because if you know anything about the war, you know what we tried next after yes. D Day. You know what what came next. I mean, there are points at which, if you did present this story, you would be told to rein it in. Yeah, because. There's like stuff that I think, you know, you could look at as foreshadowing to something that comes in the future. But you mm. could say that if it, that was actually how it happened, then perhaps it just shows the sort of the ironies of life rather than, yeah. you know, other things. There's currently a lot of focus on Lugers 
on the the desire to get your hands on a Luger, yes, you yeah. know, and that is Chekhov's gun very much in this. <laughs> right, literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whether or not that was just, like I say, a massive irony or whether dramatically you would call it foreshadowing, it just so happens that the two are the same thing in, in that respect. Yeah, well, they say that truth is stranger than fiction. Get that on a T-shirt as well. Although that probably <laughs> is what the... Uh, QAnon, that's probably what they've got. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. yes. Um, also, this show is not an endorsement of Hitler or QAnon. No, no, none of those things. Bad people. Paul, can I hear something in the background? Can I hear someone shouting free Doctor Who memorabilia? That's always going on in the background of my house. Do you think you ought to go and check it out? Hang on a minute. I smell a rat. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, you've sussed me out, because I was going to just find a moment to tell the listeners that we've got some more James Holland coming up. James Holland, James Schmoland. See if I care. As a rule, how do you feel about how accurate historical dramas need to be? I mean, there was that big row last year about whether or not we should say that The Crown is fiction. I sometimes agree, and I, and I don't, depending on what the purpose of the historical inaccuracy is. If it leaves someone with the impression that something happened that didn't happen, I think it's wrong. But if it kind of mushes a whole lot together to make it easier for people to understand, I don't object. I wonder sort of as a historian how you feel. I kind of rather agree. And I think one has to remember that that, um, a motion picture, a movie, is a drama and and it's inevitably going to be fictionalised because it might have real people in it and use the same names and stuff, but it's fiction. Um, mm. Based on real events, that's 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 a different thing. You know, it's, it's not a documentary. It's it's not a it's not a work of history. It is just a drama. So you have to be a little bit careful about kind of being too harsh. I, I suppose what I kind of think is is that you know Hollywood and and filmmakers and TV makers have a huge responsibility in one way because a whole swathe of people are watching these things. And and if you if you lay on the kind of this is true story kind of too heavily then people start to think, well, that's how it happened. That's mm. what it's like. So, you know, you watch Dunkirk or something and you, you, you think that's an accurate depiction of what it was like on the beaches. Well it, well, it just absolutely isn't at all and wasn't. I mean, it wasn't anything like that. So, you know, I think you have to be in, in, incredibly careful. And I think those kind of sort of words of caution need to be kind of writ large at the beginning. Mm. I mean, the thing about sort of Band of Brothers is, for the most part, it is pretty accurate. But, but take, take episode two, where they're kind of taking out those four gun positions for example, there were no trenches as such. There was a culvert there. Um, there was no sort of boarded up trenches because they had only recently, the Germans had only recently put those guns in and, you know, they just hadn't prepared those defences in the same way. You know, on the, in, in the that particular episode, that sequence lasts about 15 minutes while it was in reality, the whole thing took the best part of a day to clear those four guns. Right. You know, people going into action, going back, getting more ammunition, going back again. You know, it was like a, it was like a sustained action that that took hours not minutes and you don't even get remotely a sense of that but what you do get very vividly is a sense of kind of the heightened tension the adrenaline the kind of the sounds the kind of you don't get the smells but you sort of you can almost smell it i mean i think you know as, as an action sequence it's absolutely stupendously well done but is it accurate as to what actually happened on those on that day not really 
I wanted to talk briefly about Joe Toy, who will eventually have some impact on you as a character as time goes on. But for an explanation, because you currently probably don't remember who it is, Joe Toy is hit twice by exploding things in this episode, one of which was thrown by his own side. And he also puts a horse out of its misery after it's injured. And he is just, Joe Toy to me is just the very epitome of a head down, get on with it attitude. I'm not sure where his ancestors were from, but I, I feel it's probably Yorkshire. <laughs> we'll take that. Yeah. Stoic, mustn't grumble. It's, I mean, that attitude permeates through that whole generation, or certainly through everyone in this. But I think Joe Toy particularly stands out as a man who just gets on with it. Does the job. Do you look at any of these and think, Christ, that's, that'd be me. That'd be me with a Simon Pegg thousand yard stare rather than <laughs> that would be me, hit twice, gets up, carries on. That'd be me getting shot in the buttock like Forrest Gump. <laughs> It'd be me seeing if there, was, if, was, you know, if there was a job in the kitchens or something I could do. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not sure I'd be cut out for war, but who knows? We've never been tested, have we? So you liked the actor chat last week, didn't you? I love a bit of actor chat. Would you like to hear a bit more of it? A bit more actor chat? Yeah, because I've been talking to Matthew Leach and we had a really funny chat. I've had to cut a bit out because he told me a lot of great stories about meeting the actual men from Easy Company and therefore it will be spoilery. So I'm going to shift that right till the end, to the last episode. Right. One of the hottest days we've had for such a long time and we both were sat in our house with our windows closed because there were people outside enjoying themselves and it was picking up on the recording. So, yeah, I'm ever so grateful that he sat and got very, very hot and sweaty with us for half an hour. Hot actor chat. Right, let's go for it. Band of Brothers is actually 20 today. I have you today and it is his 20th birthday. Does it feel like it was 20 years ago or does it feel like it was just yesterday? Brand of Brothers was released 20 years ago. It's actually 21 years old. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to be a tool. Um, <laughs> correct <laughs> Please don't correct me, don't mind. Yeah, uh, thanks for joining us, Matthew. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. You know, I was thinking about it the other day. Sometimes it feels 20 years ago, and sometimes it feels five minutes ago, and I get things wrong, like that stuff that I did five years after. I, I forget that I did it. It was such a big, strong, vivid part of my life that I sort of like measure other things against it time-wise. Sometimes it feels 20 years ago, especially when I consider how old I am now, uh, my kids, and how tired I am. And other times it just it feels like yesterday. I'll tell you when it feels like yesterday is when I do things like we do the Zoom meetings like I've been mm. doing, and everybody pops on, and it just feels like yesterday. We had Kirk Casavito on, uh, who plays Joe Toy. Mm. I haven't really spoken to Kirk in 21 years. And on boot camp... I, <laughs> I did something to annoy him. And he's a bit of an angry prickly pear anyway. Uh, we were trying to we're doing an exercise to take a bridge. You take a bridge from both sides, right? So all the guys are running, and because I'm the first sergeant, I'm kind of throwing them on the side of the bridge like this. And I, I got him, and I threw him, and he tripped and fell, and he's never forgiven me. <laughs> um, he's like, we're going to talk later. You and me going to talk. <laughs> I never knew whether he just that was him he's done so much since whether it was even in his mind and i had him on zoom and he's not gone and he shamed me he told this whole story and he was like matthew i've never forgiven matthew for that <laughs> i'm so sorry i'm so sorry great impersonation tell me about those zoom meetings how did they come about well 
it was the weirdest thing. Um, it's I not say some... Zoom meetings. I should probably explain. They're watch-alongs rather than you all just have a chat. Some of them, some of them we watch the episodes. Some of them are just kind of reunions. They're all based on the episodes, and we didn't ask about face. I think we did episode six first with Shane and Lucy John, who plays as the nurse, and we just kind of they came about in the oddest way. It was a signing. I got Sharpie to demonstrate. They wanted me to sign some stuff, and they were like, "What's your fee?" And I was like, "There's a fee." Yeah, you sign stuff, you get a fee. And I was like, well, that's a bit crap, isn't it? Like, I'm just sat in a pub signing stuff. Why not? Like, it would be better if at least I can see them and say, oh, hey, man. So then I was like, well, why don't you do it on Zoom? And then it just weirdly spiraled into like, okay, what if we do them on Zoom, but we invite other band guys on, see if they'll come on and chat. And then it just, just took on a life of its own. And we've had uh, directors on and producers and all the main cast just jumped on. It's been brilliant. I mean, I promised all the guys, I was like, they're not going to sit on YouTube. No, it's live. So mm. we are kind of gotten to come on and be like, you know, just, just let rip now. It's a pay-per-view. And then they're gone. But I've sort of, I've re-released one just for the 20th anniversary to, to the to the We Happy Few 506 followers just for this, for this next couple of days yeah. uh, as a celebration of the 20th. So you, you can watch that one on YouTube now. When I spoke to Ben Kaplan the other day, he said that once he started talking about it, it was like a whole flood of memories came back. I'm guessing that's been the same for you. It has. Do you know what? I really struggled to write questions for people at the beginning. And then it would slowly... And I think, oh, yeah, I know what to ask. I know what to ask. Because I sort of specifically picked pods of people that I knew got on well with each other. So you got Neil McDonough and then Kirk and then Nick Aaron um, and Donnie Wahlberg came on, which was amazing. I ask a bunch of questions and I write like 19 pages of them. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, there can be no dead air. And I usually ask about four and then it just turns to a round table of people bringing up memories. Like, no, 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 do you remember? And often what I remember, someone has a totally different memory of it. And they're like, no, no, that's not what happened. There's a great thing with um, Ian Bailey, Webster, during boot camp. He got in a massive row with Dale Dye. And I remembered it as completely wrong as, as, as what had caused it. And it was someone else. And I was like, no, you're right. That, that's exactly what happened. It was brilliant, brilliant. He got in a row with Dale Dye. That's a brave man that does that. That seems really terrifying idea to me. You know, he's, he's L.A. and he's like, like, you know, hey, man. And, just like Dale Dye kept saying, you get to the, the doorway and you put like your right foot forward and then you, we were practicing parachute landing balls that were jumping out. And Ian was going, but that's not your right foot, it's your left foot, man. And he's like, Dale Dye said, shut up, Bailey. <laughs> so they wanted this row. And Dale was putting the wrong foot forward. And then at one point, he actually put his left foot forward to jump out. And Bailey's like, there you go. And that's it. Dale just went for him. <laughs> went for him. But we just did... Uh, We've jumped onto the Pacific now, so we're now doing the Pacific. Oh, great. Giving it away a little bit here, but Bruce C. McKenna, who wrote a bunch of Band of Brothers and is an executive producer from the Pacific, apparently <laughs> offered Dale Dye out in a fist fight. No. Over, over <laughs> some matter of business on the Pacific. And I was like, dude, what in the time you have been alive makes you think you'd have won a fist fight with Dale Dye? You're going to tap on his face. It's like, I think even now I couldn't take him in a fight and he's He's exactly the same physical specimen as he was (laughs) he's just made out of old dead GI parts (laughs) 
So, Matthew, I'm going to try and do this in a non-spoilery way. So I can't ask you if you ever met Floyd Tilbert. Can you tell us something about Floyd Tolbert, the man? What sense of him you got from playing him? He was known as Dick Winter's guardian angel. And I got the sense of him from production, from my, uh, uh, from all my research and from speaking, that he was, um, he was one of those guys that had an enormous like, calming influence on people and was, and was incredibly well-liked among the men. It's a strange, <laughs> it's a strange dynamic to play in a war show. That do you know what I mean? A sort of like incredibly affable, calm guy. It, it, it almost goes a little bit subsonic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, whereas the sort of the bigger characters come to the front. Um, I was just trying to make him as as, as honest and affable and nice and sort of like chaos going on. Um, that that he was described as being. Is there any other character in this that you think if you've given the chance you'd have really liked to play? Um, that's a very good question. I think I would have liked to have played one of the officers. Not not Winters, but maybe Welsh or, you know, if I had a higher profile, someone like Nixon, because my father is a colonel or was a colonel. Oh, really? I, yeah, he was a colonel in the medical corps. And before that, he had been a paratrooper. So he gave me some, he does not amount of many words when it comes to giving advice. So I told him I was playing a paratrooper and he just said, don't get your heels under your ass when you land. That's all he said. That was all I said. <laughs> um, Thanks, Dad. I'd been around a lot of army officers growing up. And a lot of my friends uh, went off to Sanders and became army officers. And I kind of, I kind of understand the psyche. And I understand the psyche of, of, of leading what it takes to be sort of like, engaged with them and have them follow you and at the same time be, you know, away from them so that they respect you. My father was extremely good at that. Not a great father, but but a very well respected officer. So it would have been nice to have played an officer and in some way do it as an homage to my dad, because otherwise we didn't have much to talk about. <laughs> if I'm entirely honest. Uh his fruity son being an actor. Although he was happy with this. He was happy with this show. Yeah, I bet. Do you think you could have done that? I mean, you went through a slight boot camp. I, I say slight. I mean, I would never have got through it, but you went through like 10 days of it. Do you yeah. think you had it in you to, to go the full way if you put in the effort? It was sort of mapped out for me to join the army. I went to a sort of military feed school. I was a cadet. I was a sergeant in the cadets. And I used to march people around, even though I'm about this big and my uniform didn't fit properly. And I loved boot camp. I kept my mouth completely shut the entire time. But I'd kind of like grown up around stuff like that. My dad used to take me on exercise when I was a kid. Uh, and I'd done all this like cadet work and stuff. And um, I loved boot camp. I had a great time. But I felt like I'm out. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think I think I could have I think I could have done it. Whether or not I'd have lasted long as an actual soldier, as mm. a natural rule breaker. Although, in, weirdly enough, with sort of young subalterns, they call the young officers, it's kind of encouraged, you know what I mean? Like a certain... Recklessness yeah. is encouraged, but whether or not I wouldn't have been sent to the brig or whatever it's called for being bad, I don't know. I don't know what lasted. The whole thing looks terrifying to me, um, and exhausting. Just absolutely exhausting. Tiredness is a very important. But we interviewed the cadre, so Dale Dye and Freddie Joe Farnsworth and Stokey, who who did a band and they did Pacific, and they're currently doing Masters of the Air. Although we're not allowed to talk about that. Freddie Joe Farnsworth is a sergeant that gave us the most hell. And he, it, it, it's a really important part of breaking you down is tiredness and sleep deprivation. 
and not letting you rest. He reckons give him 48 hours, 48 hours and he's got you. He's just going to let you sleep 48 hours. And you start to get a kind of tunnel vision. And I was speaking to some like Marines about this as well. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 we know that. You're constantly fighting for sleep and then someone's constantly shouting at you. In the end, you just say, yes, sir, that's it. And you just you just snap into line. But you get a weird tunnel vision. Like everything goes down, like constricts down, irises down like this. And everything outside is kind of fuzzy. And you're just focused on one thing because you're completely sleep deprived. And that's a really important part, breaking you as an actor or an enlistee and making you into a soldier. So, yeah, about exhaustion, basically. How did you get on with the accent? Talbot's from Indiana, so you had it was kind of a, a, a kind of more generic American accent to hit, whereas, like, Robin Lang had to hit that weird working-class filly, which looks incredibly difficult to do. How did you get on with that? I mean, I think Robin Lang is fantastic in that show. The working-class filly accent is so outrageous. There's a good follows the show. Every so often she'll leave me a little voice message, and it's the weirdest accent. It's slightly New York but she's, she's also quite a little, she's really funny the way she talks. <laughs> Sometimes she, kind of, she sounds kind of Irish and well, it's yeah. so weird, it's such a weird accent. But I'm, a, I'm an accent nerd, I can learn them phonetically, and I'm really into them, so the weirder the accent, the more I think I would have enjoyed it. We do stuff, and I'm, I'm talking to Americans, and I say, oh, you know, how do you do the accent, man? And I'm like, well... The thing to remember about an American accent, and this is why I think Americans can't do the English accent, is there's no English yeah. in an accent at all. It's a cross between Dutch and Irish. So if you want to learn how to do it, you sort of have to, you know, that's kind of like porn star, hey baby, how you doing? Type of Amsterdam accent, you want to smoke some weed or what? You, you take that and then you take, the Irish, you take the Irish accent and the Amsterdam accent and you put them together and you kind of get this American kind of sound that goes through it. As long as you can kind of, like, keep it there, then you get it right. Can we talk about fandom? Yes. Because my first guess is that people don't automatically recognise people from Band of Brothers because it's actually quite hard to spot who you guys are for a casual observer. Exactly that. So I'm thinking that if someone comes up to you and recognises you from Band of Brothers, you already know that they're they're a big fan. Yes, Yes, they have. Not. They must have that look in their eyes as well as yeah, they're settling do. in for a long conversation. They do a little bit. It's not show people watch once. I don't think. I think <laughs> it's like over binging. So yeah. yeah, if people recognise you, then they've definitely seen it a lot. Um, Is that a thing of joy? I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. People recognising me has always been a bit weird. I don't. I, I'm, I'm happy when they do it. I'm like, that's great, especially now. Cause I'm like, geez, that was twenty odd years ago. Yeah. Um, God, I look great. God, God, I look good. <laughs> God. thank you, elements. <laughs> Day and night cream. A lot more in America. Happened a lot more in America up until recently, and now I think I think it was a slow burn coming over here. Me and my son did this ridiculous YouTube thing where we were called something and Doctor Fartface. And I was in Holland doing a Band of Brothers thing, and someone came up to me and said, like, hello, Dr. Fartface. That was a good thing. Can I recognise from that? That was good. But the fandom itself is a weird one because it's it, they're fans of the real guys. And then they basically just say, thanks for playing that guy. Yeah. So what's weird about it is that people will come up with you or email you or Facebook you or whatever you, Instagram you, and they know more about 
Floyd Talbot than I did. That's a bit strange. Yeah. Yeah, there uh, is a lot of stuff out there. There is genuinely just a huge amount of Band of Brothers material. I mean, I am a fan. I mean, I actually follow you guys, um, We Happy Few. But as, as a rule, I don't tend to follow fan sites and stuff like that. But when I when I started looking around for this, I found a huge amount of stuff. A huge amount of stuff. And whole tours you can go on that are all yes. like, visit this site yeah. and go here. and Yeah, there's guys that do it. And then the World War II Museum does it as well, uh, which is where I get into a weird territory here because they've got some squirrely rules about what I can and can't say. But mm. I have toured with them as a kind of guest speaker and guys come from all over America and they just, they do the whole thing. They do it from, you know, basically the pottery and all that area and uh, all the way through to the Eagle's Nest. And then if people sort of get downwind, they can hear all these reenacts who show up and everything. Mm. As someone who loves history, anything that makes people interested in history, because people will say, oh, I don't like history because it's just dates. And you're like, that's ridiculous. It's human beings is what it is. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, Band of Brothers reminds people that these aren't just men. They are individuals. And, and yeah, so I think it's a good thing when you find that people get into history from a television programme. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, <laughs> the only toes I think it treads on is historians. Some of those guys can be a bit snippy. Matthew, it's been an absolute pleasure. Can I ask you if people want to find out a bit more about the stuff, the Band of Brothers stuff that you're doing? I know you did some filming. Um, yes. Ben Kaplan told us you did some filming. Where can they find out more? You just go to wehappyu506.com, uh, I believe. That would be the webpage. The Facebook page has exactly the same name. So it's wehappyu506. I think we're on Instagram as well. Uh all, all roads lead to Rome, and you'll see what we're doing. All our social media posts will, sh- will show you where our, where our next shows will be and that kind of stuff. I think there's a good chance what we're going to do a bit later on in the year is start to start to reissue them and sort of rent them out on Vimeo and that kind of mm. things. Come and have a look what we've done. There's a lot of teasers and testers and stuff. And come and follow us whilst we do the Pacific stuff. Uh, and then we'll revisit the Band of Brothers stuff because um, it was great. There's some, there's some, there's some great interviews. And then the one coming up, um, which is mostly about with the old breed, with the uh, E.B. Sledge's son, is great. And Bruce McKenna is on it, who wrote a lot of Band of Brothers and all the rest of it, and he's a firebrand about the Pacific. He's a, he's a, he was a great interview. So come visit us there. So that's it for this week, but we have got some fun stuff coming up next week when we are going to be watching episode three, Karen Tan. Nothing to do with Karen's off the internet, is it? No, No. it's a whole lot worse than (laughs) that. It's a whole lot worse than that. And also, I have been talking to a very nice man, also called Matthew, at the American Battlefields and Monuments Commission, which you and I know as the American Cemetery. We do. It's uh, right on our doorstep, isn't it? Yeah. And we are chatting about how many Americans there were in the UK during the war and also the kind of technical nitty gritty of what happened to people when they were killed overseas. Would it help if I changed my name to Matthew? I mean, maybe. You've been listening to What Are You Making Me Watch, which is written, produced and edited by Hannah Dunleavy and Paul Kirkley. Our theme tune, Silver and Gold, is from Audio Hub. You can follow us on Twitter at Make Me Watch Pod, or you can follow Paul, where he is, at PR Kirkley. The rest of the time, he can be found on the pages of 
Waitrose Weekend, Classic Pop and Doctor Who magazine, among many other things. Among several other things. He's also written two books about Doctor Who. What are they called, mate? They're called um, Space Helmet for a Cow 1 and Space Helmet for a Cow 2. <laughs> two, two space, two cow. <laughs> yeah, two helmets. <laughs> and you can find hannah on twitter at that dunleavy or in her day job talking about women's rights and a lot more besides at the standard issue podcast thanks for listening